Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. Hey everyone, welcome to the CISO Talk podcast. We have a very, very special episode coming here in just a moment. Before we get started on today's show though, please make sure to comment and subscribe. If you're listening on your favorite podcast listening platform, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating that helps push us up in the rankings. Thank you for all of our listeners um, who do that as well. I'm very, very grateful for your support. If you're watching us on YouTube, please subscribe, turn on the notification bell, get notified. Every single day, I have some piece of content that comes to you on YouTube. So if you have not subscribed to our YouTube channel, make sure you do that right then and there. Also, join us on Clubhouse. You can follow me on Clubhouse at James Cesar, where you'll get all the latest. We do about three or four rooms a week on Clubhouse as well on all kinds of stuff, including our infamous Cyber Couch, the therapy session for cybersecurity professionals. So you can join me there. But we're about to get started because I have a very very, very special guest coming on the show today. Really special, like huge expectations. He's going to blow this out of the water. There's no pressure on Jeff at all. None, zero. But right after this, joining me will be Jeff Belknap, the CISO over at LinkedIn. So are you ready, folks? Because here we go. It's time for CISO Talk. From the Cyber Hub Bunker in studio. You're listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. No sales, no bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. Jeff, welcome to the show. I'm looking around for this major guest you are talking about, but I'm the only one here, so I will do my best, James. I will try. My the expectation hardest. has been set so high today that there's, you know, um, feel no pressure at all. No yeah, pressure. no, I've, I, you know, in my job, there's no pressure whatsoever. So I think it's, it's great to come on here and just have you just, you know, amp it up, just bring it, bring it to a level that I can enjoy. Thank you. You know, I think that CISO jobs are not stressful at all. In fact, we sleep better than babies. Absolutely. I never worry. I'm never up late, never concerned about anything in particular. It's just, it's a blissfully ignorant lifestyle to have. I think everybody you know, when should people tell When people tell me, what do you like about cybersecurity the most? I go, the about 10 to 11 hours of sleep I get every single night because there's nothing for me to worry about. 
Yeah, and 12 to 14 on weekends. I think that's, uh, especially Friday evenings. I think that's the greatest part is all the sleep you get. I think you've nailed it. This is a uh, good ad for CISO Career Path. That's a great ad for CISO Career Path. And then we're going to get sued for false advertising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good, good luck with all of this. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Um, as we kind of get started, I'd love for you to share with a lot of our audience, kind of your background, how you got started in cybersecurity. What was that journey like for you? How I got started. I think, um, you know, for me, I I hate telling this story because it feels like the most privileged story ever, but uh, I'll tell it because it's the truth. I started my career uh, in network engineering. I, you know, it was, it was the, <clears throat> the early 90s and, uh, you know, internet was happening. I, I went from working at McDonald's to working in an internet cafe because they paid 75 cents more an hour. That was back when making five fifteen an hour was you were just doing primo good, um, and I was like, "Man, this internet thing this is this is pretty cool." And I was lucky, and I uh, was able to go from the internet cafe to the internet provider, and the networking seemed really really neat. But as a kid, uh, I I always wanted to be a cop or a firefighter or a pilot, like just those basal young boy instincts. Um, but I intrinsically was sort of interested in in justice and and helping people and, and community service. And, you know, I, uh, early in my network engineering career, I, uh, I took a job working for a sheriff's department, uh, as a civilian, but was interested in becoming uh, a deputy. And, uh, you know, that just, it didn't pan out, uh, because I ended up, you know, like I said, it was the, it was the late nineties, early two thousands, the internet was going, going crazy. And uh, it was really hard uh, to imagine, you know, taking an entry-level uh, law enforcement job over, you know, this network engineering career that was that was burgeoning and doing really well. Um, about 10, 10 to twelve years into that career, I had the opportunity to work at a startup um, that was turned out to be a security startup, and that really spoke to me. It was like, oh, great, this is really interesting. It's a network security startup. It was a company called Solera Networks. And I uh, started there when we were about, I don't know, six, six people, maybe eight people. Um, and it was really interesting to, to sort of bridge that gap and have that first access to the, the security world. And I, you know, I tried uh, very hard to break into the security community and sort of get to understand and made, made a bunch of friends who were very welcoming. Um, and then did the, uh, the, old, old white, the oldest, whitest guy trick ever of like, Hey, I'm going to take this other job over here. I uh, worked at a company called Palantir and they said, Hey, we want you to run networking, but actually what we need is an adult who makes good decisions. I was like, I'm an adult. I don't know about the good decisions part. <laughs> um, but they're like, would you like to run and build the security team here? I was like, I, that sounds awesome. I'd love to give, love to give that a shot. Um, and <laughs> that turned out to work pretty well. turns out to, I was, I was fairly adept at, uh, at building and running a security team. Hired a bunch of great people, um, met a bunch of wonderful people, and and sort of uh, the rest is history from there. I've been CISOing ever since for the last you know ten plus years, uh, and it's been it's been an amazing journey. But I'd say for me, it was it was very fortunate that I was sort of in the right place at the right time. I was able to accidentally fall into a CISO role, and I realized you know it's much, that's much more difficult for everybody else these days. Uh, so I spent a fair amount of time talking to people that are trying to break into the industry and, and thinking about becoming CISOs. And if I can't talk them out of it, I then spend a fair amount of time talking to them about you know what a good CISO is and and sort of how to how to develop into that role. You know, the interesting thing about breaking into cyber and wanting the CISO role is like we said earlier, the 12 hours of sleep on weekends, the 10, 11 hours of sleep in the weekdays, the careless life. I mean, 
you know, you're in California, I'm in Atlanta, so I drink a lot of bourbon. You probably surf a lot, right? Because that's the, the that's the misconceptions, <laughs> right? Um, I have I have so much time for surfing. It's amazing. Uh, I right, don't know. I barely have a job. You know, it's uh, people say, James, how do you do sisoing? And I'm like, that's really easy. It's so much fun. Like, you know, you just buy every single product from every single vendor that you get an email from and you put them on and you're, it's supposed to stop everything bad from happening. Yeah. I spend just 15 minutes with everyone who sends me an email and that's not true. So don't send me any <laughs> asking for 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, uh, I think the irony is thick here. Um, I, the, the job definitely is not easy. Um, both technically it's not easy. And then I think, um, you know, mentally it's very challenging, but I think that's what most people really like about it. I mean, I know that's, what's appealing to me. I, uh, while I often find myself saying, wish I was good at something else, uh, so that I wouldn't have to worry professionally for a living, but I'm good at this. And I find the, the puzzles and the challenges that we face every day are different and interesting and the leadership skills, uh, you're, are, are used and challenged every day and the technology constantly shifts. So it's not like the job is the same as when I started it. It's, you know, the themes and the broad strokes are, are still there, but it's a different job. It feels like every year. It is. It's a, it's a job that constantly changes. One thing, you know, you probably, you may say the same thing to people looking to break into cyber, but you know, the first question I ask them is how are you, how do you deal with change? If, I mean, you have to embrace it, right? It's uh, yeah. you if you're bad at change, uh, and and certainly I'm someone who appreciates routine and consistency. But if you're bad at managing change, this is not the job for you. Because you know, I I spend a fair amount of time talking to some of my peers. I just did another podcast with a, a friend of mine, David Shellhase, um, and who's the who happens to be the GC of uh, of a company called Slack. And you know, I find the CFO and the GC path very similar to the CISO in that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, the role of CFO was very different and sort of ill-defined. And then we sort of, uh, I think Alex Stamos sort of points out, you you hit the Enron times and then CFOs really become something serious and the the role is very well-defined. And now they have skin in the game from a regulatory and a legislative perspective. I think uh, CISOs are on a similar path. We're just very early in the career. We're not, you know, not everybody is certain. And when I say not everybody, I mean boards and executives are not certain what the CISO does, what the scope of the role should be. But I think if we look forward another 10, 15 years, it's going to be one of these things that's very, very clear. Everyone understands exactly what the roles and responsibilities and the outcomes that a CISO drives. It's just we're early. And because we're early, you constantly have to be managing that change, change in your organization, uh, change in your InfoSec organization, but just change in the space in general. I love that. Let's talk a little bit about breaking into cybersecurity and hiring people, right? Building our InfoSec teams, which is critical, I think, for a lot of CISOs. What are some of the um, skills and talents you look for when you're you know, hiring people for your team? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the good news is the best time to break into cybersecurity is right now. Uh, there's no there's no better time than the present. And, and that's because InfoSec is just so inherently multidisciplinary. There is no one InfoSec skill set. There's no single certification or, or set of skills that you need to learn uh, to, to break into the career path. 
And and while that's daunting, because certainly there's a million different training courses and boot camps and things like that that you might uh, you might look to participate in, it really just means like it's a world of opportunity. And I think, and I know you and I have both run into each other on Clubhouse, talking to groups of people that are interested in breaking into it. And the exciting thing for me is like, great if you if you were an aviation mechanic or you know you you were working at a uh, at a grocery store just before, it is not difficult to find some set of skills to train yourself on to get that first foot in the door into into infosec, right? Whether that's like great you you might be great at policy and reading and sort of uh, analytic you have some analytical skills like great you might you might work great in governance risk and compliance and I've seen an incredible amount of people come up in that governance risk and compliance compliance space, develop their skills, their technical skills, sort of understand the space, and then pivot into other roles. And at the same time, I've had uh, I've had recruiters and, and other TPMs that have worked for me that have pivoted to more technical roles in InfoSec and, uh, and more leadership roles in InfoSec. So, you know, for me, what I look for at a core level, what I think is consistent across any of these people that are looking to transition into InfoSec or start in InfoSec is that analytical sort of curiosity, somebody that wants to sort of pull at a thread and learn more about it and can go where the facts take them, not necessarily go wherever Twitter tells them to, to jump to conclusions. The other part is, you know, and I, and I think this is directly related to that, somebody who's a committed learner, right? Who's going to constantly be trying to learn what they're doing, uh, learn how to do what they're doing better, um, but also somebody who's adaptable in the sense that Great, you you've learned one skill set. Can you train yourself on another skill set? Can you can you take the building blocks that we give you and and uh, develop yourself with that? Because in infosec, uh, unlike you know if you're a mechanic, right? If you're a mechanic, you can take a structured set of uh, of education that can give you the base level of skills. And there's a very clear path to developing mastery. You know, you can go from apprentice to master in, in that path fairly easily. In infosec you have to be constantly willing to adapt and pull from different disciplines that you've learned something from to build yourself into a better version of whatever career path you're on. But the good news is, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a curious learner, if you're a committed learner, if you can think analytically and sort of analyze the facts, uh, and if integrity is an important part of who you are as a person and sort of getting to the, the truth and protecting people uh, is, is something that is a passion for you, like I, I want to talk to you. I think you're going to do great in infosec. If uh, self promotion and uh, you know having that uh, profile pic of you on the stage is all you're really looking for, like great. There clearly is a spot for you in infosec, but I think I'm much more interested in the people that are looking to be those uh, the sort of servant leaders and the people to really help people, not necessarily to be on the spotlight. Yeah, there's a, 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 I love the three things you said here, which is analytical curiosity, a committed learner and integrity. Um, those are three very articulate ways to talk about it from a, from a set of things you look for in people, because at the end of the day, uh, when we're hiring people on our team, we're not looking for just someone who's going to come in and fill the role. You, you really, I think good leaders, and we'll talk about that here in just a second, want people who can replace you so you can move on with your career. So you're not always looking for someone who's going to just sit in and, and, and sit at a keyboard. You want someone who's going to come in and really get the work done. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, you know, look, uh, maybe this is an over, over simplistic way to look at life, but I feel like time is all you have, but integrity is all that you are. Um, yep. And in InfoSec, 
you, your integrity is really that thing that ends up protecting people and companies and, and places. And if you, if you, if that is not inside you to rely on, like you really probably don't belong in this industry. Yeah. That's a, that's a, you know, there's a saying in Hebrew and I'll say it in Hebrew and then I'll translate it, but it's kind of biblical in a way where Adif Shem Tov, Masher Shem Tov. So what it means is it's better to have a good name than good oil. Because oil used to be very valuable back in the day, right? Because oil was everything. Yeah. But they go, you'd rather have a better name than the best oil. Like focus on your reputation than you are on having, you know, the best oil. Because uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point. Like, look, um, the skill set that you have today, you know, whatever technology, you know, whatever programming language, you know, whatever that is, like, that's valuable today. But you as a person, you being dependable, you being somebody that's going to drive towards outcomes, you being somebody that's reliable and high integrity, that's not going to change, right? That's always going to be a set of skill set. Uh, that's always going to be a set of attributes that people are interested in. And People want to be around other people like that. And people want to work hard and do the best work of their life around a group of people like that because they can, you can be vulnerable around somebody who has high integrity and 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 that you trust. You can learn things when you're vulnerable. And you know, look, this space, InfoSec, is not defined yet. We don't not, nobody knows exactly how to do this. Like, yes, we should patch our stuff, we should have asset inventories. Like that's all a given, but there's no clear path to exactly how to do InfoSec right. Um, but there's a clear path about who to do it with. Um, and those are people that you trust. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, people that you can work hard with together. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about our role as CISOs. What, what do you think are some of the qualities CISOs should have to really excel in their roles and really build out their teams? You know, I, uh, I, I'm going to say integrity uh, turns out to be really, really important here uh, and a theme that I'm going to beat on a whole bunch. Um, but I think, you know, successful CISOs that that I've worked with and, and people that I look up to and look to for advice are people that um, I think like me, you know, so for me, I'm only good at being me. I'm not good at being somebody else or trying to be what somebody else needs me to be. I, I know how to be me. Uh, and I know how to, you know, implement that as far as being a CISO. And and being me means I'm going to talk directly about things. I'm going to talk as much as I can factually about things. I'm also going to tell a, an incredible amount of jokes because I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the hard lessons that we learn in this space have to sort of come with a little bit of humor. And it might be dark humor, but it has to, you know, there has to be some levity there to give space to sort of uh, step back and learn from some some pretty awful situations sometimes. So I think the good CISOs can be themselves, can be direct and factual, can communicate, uh, you know, highly technical information in ways that board members and other executives and and people that are not technical can consume them. And I think most importantly, there are people that can, you know, sort of contextualize the risk that an organization is facing in in terms that they need to be able to face it. Um, and I think most importantly, CISOs are people that don't see themselves as the the people that need the board to be more technical or the, that are there to teach everyone to be more technical. They're there to help the business understand the, the business impact of the risk that they're managing. And, I, you know, obviously all the same baseline appro- uh, applies. Like you're, you're there as the senior most executive responsible for securing that organization. It's just you know, we're, we're managing risk or however your organization sort of sees that role. Again, like we talked about, it's not really a fully defined role. 
Um, but I think ultimately, you know, you you have a responsibility as a senior leader of that organization to help it grow and thrive and to make sure it does it as securely and safely as possible. So that that's an excellent point. When you look at a CISO across the enterprise, right? So let's get beyond the security team and the IT or network or infrastructure and go across the business. There's there's a set of skills that you talked about here, you know, uh, factual speaking simply and so forth. When you lead across the organization, what are some of the skills there that you think we need to develop to really not only be viewed as cyber leaders, but really to be viewed as enterprise leaders? I think the main skill that served me really well is just being able to build relationships. Um, Because I think, you know, if I fall back on my, uh, my early fantasies of working in law enforcement, um, you know, the, the FBI is a great example of, of kind of uh, the model that a CISO has to work in. You know, FBI has to work in all sorts of different jurisdictions. Uh, they can't really, they can't do much solely on their own. They've got to have partnerships with state, local, and other federal agencies. A CISO can only do so much on their own. And, and frankly, even that is very little. You can, you know, you can easily drive visibility. You can drive sort of small change. But if you want to drive systemic architectural change, you've got to have relationships with other leaders. And, and that's got to be based on, you know, some amount of trust uh, because that trust comes from, you know, you uh, exhibiting and, and being believable that you have a knowledge of what their business is, what they're responsible for, that you're being pragmatic and not just reactionary. And, you know, if I have to run to somebody and say, oh my God, stop whatever you're doing. I need you to, you know, turn off a hundred thousand servers and patch them immediately. Uh, you know, sure, some amount of the title is going to get you that meeting and get you that attention. But if you haven't built any relationship with that leader, like that's going to be an uphill battle. And I think even worse, if you have to go to a CEO or a board and say, hey, we have a huge problem. We have this unmanaged risk in, in some way, shape or form, and we need to stop everything and fix it. Uh, well, that's like that conversation right there is not going to work. Uh, just, you know, if you, if you haven't built a relationship, you haven't talked to these people, if they don't, if you haven't demonstrated an understanding of how the business works and, and what the concerns are outside of security, and you're not be able to demonstrate that you're weighing the equities of all these things, and then coming out on top where you're saying the most important thing is protecting the end user, you know, balancing all these other equities, you're going to fail. Uh, and I think the more time a CISO has to spend in the time of an emergency explaining and begging and trying to influence at that moment, the the more you're losing. So I think one of the most important things a leader can do is a demonstrate, you know, as, as a security leader is demonstrate that they understand the business, that they are an executive that is part of the business, part of helping it grow and thrive. It's just that obviously you're coming from a bias of like, look, protecting our customers and our members and our, and our data is essential to the business being competitive and being able to communicate that that helps build relationships with other technical and business leaders and you need both um and those relationships really help drive the the outcomes and how fast you can drive the outcomes you're driving towards yeah you brought up i think so many great points here with the idea of building like with the concept of how important it is to build relationships across the business it kind of all you've kind of built this perfect pie here and what I mean by the perfect pie is you, we talk about kind of the theme of today's podcast for you, which is integrity, right? And we look at how integrity is really the baseline. It's the crust of your pie. You know, how many times have you had a pie 
And I don't know if you're a pie guy. I'm a pie guy. That's my dessert. I'm a pie guy. I love pie. Any pie, just give me pie. So, you know, I'm hearing you like pie, James. I I, I do love pie. Um, and and also the mathematical equation of pie, like pie days coming up, right? We're we're what? We're we're a few days from pie day. We're only a few days away. Yeah, we're only a few days away from pie day. And so, um, I like the idea of the the integrity aspect of being the baseline, the crust of your pie, which is really the most important part of the pie. And talking about building relationships, which is kind of your stuffing, right? A good pie has a good solid base, but it's also got really good stuffing. And I like to simplify stuff and uh, I'm, I'm a foodie. And so I'm I like where we're going with this more food you know, analogies. This is good. more food analogies. Cause I think in cyber, if you start to, to talk overly technical, I think you lose people. And I think that's been one of the challenges of our industry. We tend to be like, we tend to use FUD rather than break it down in a way for people to go, I get this. Okay. You know, I eat, everyone eats. I, I, I don't know of anyone who doesn't eat. So people, I, I definitely eat. I know how to eat. Just if that's a question, I, I think most cybersecurity people enjoy food. <laughs> we do. That's just like all people. Like that's a uniting factor. You sit at a restaurant with some total strangers, and when you eat, the food brings people together. There's an aspect to that that I think is very, very cool. And so, look at integrity as being the base of your pie. The relationships as being the stuffing. And then the results is the top of the pie. It's the whipped cream. It's whatever you put on top of your pie to really make it stand out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so to me, everything you just talked about is just part of like making the perfect recipe of hiring the right people. And your people really have to mimic you as a leader, right? But you've got to have that diversity of thought in the room. Your people have to be empowered to speak their minds. And when you talk about an analytical curiosity and you talked about committed learning, well, those are people who are going to bring a diversity of thought to a room. So you're not going to sit in a room with a bunch of people who go, you're right, sir. You're right, Jeff. Everything you say is hundred percent right. I want people to challenge my thought and I'm sure you do the same. Yeah. I think, I, I think in fact, the, the one part I'd take issue with there is I don't want them to mimic me. I want them to share a similar set of values, right? I want them to think integrity and, and learning and, um, and and sort of all the things that that I believe in, see either outwardly or sort of intrinsically. I want them to share those set of values, but I want them to bring that diversity of thought and perspective to the table. Because you know, if we're going to talk about food analogies, right? The, one of the most important things a chef will tell you is balancing, you know, sort of the ingredients and the flavors, and coming right. up with something that's that's you know, where the sum of its parts is greater uh, as a whole than ju- just the individual parts. So I, I think this is why I spend an incredible amount of time, um, you know, talking to other leaders, talking to people that are either established as security uh, practitioners or as coming up in security practitioners, because InfoSec is one of those spaces where, you know, having a sort of homogenous way of thinking about the problem space is the quickest path to failure. What worked for me at the last company or what worked for you at the last job that you had um, is not necessarily the thing that's going to work here. And I think this is where, uh, you know, and and don't take this the wrong way because I know you come from a DOD background. Also, um, if you just immediately take that lesson that you learned in DOD or the government and, you know, if you try to sell me a thing that worked really well for some government agency, that's not necessarily going to work for me because I have different problems. I have a different, uh, I have a different problem space. I might have common actors that are after me, but it's not always the same problem. So I think it, this is where 
I'm uh, I'm constantly beating the drum of uh, of having a diverse workforce, of having people that work remotely, of having people that work in person, of just being uh, being willing to accept people in all different shapes, sizes, and forms, because that is what gives you the most competitive security team ever. I think it's the same way like with bug bounties. The reason you want to have a bug bounty is you want to invite people that are not thinking about your security problems the same way you are to have an opinion and to share their findings and and helpfully learn and make whatever you're working on better because you have this real you know you had a 16-year-old kid in Indonesia that thought about the problem differently than you know a 40-year-old dude in California. Like that level of diversity of perspective and experience and uh, and sort of where you're coming at a problem from that is the kind of special ingredient that makes it all better for for the end user for the customer for the member yeah i I love what you just said and by the way i uh completely agree with the fact even through my dod background that just because something works at one level doesn't mean it works on every level there are bits and pieces of things that can work very well but um not the whole solution very rarely does a whole solution work for everyone and that's really evident by the way with frameworks Right. So if we switch for a second and talk about security, right? When you, I've probably spoken to hundreds of CISOs, right? Not only on the podcast, but just all the time. And when I, when we talk about frameworks, they go, well, I use a little bit of CIS top 20s. I map a little bit to NIST. Um, I look at, you know, all these different frameworks and I kind of have my own little framework. And so that kind of brings it all together to the idea that nothing can just because something worked before doesn't mean it's going to work now. And all these frameworks are great, but I don't think that one framework works for everyone. Yeah, no, I uh, agree a hundred percent. I think, you know, although I get frustrated sometimes that people will take the NIST CSF and, and sort of invent different ways to apply it at the same time, I think, you know, that's, that's how we get better frameworks. Like people are using things and applying them in a practical way that, that drives an outcome for them. Um, and I think the framework is a great, uh, frameworks in general are a great example of like how you get people using a common vocabulary, a common ontology. Um, and even if they come at problems from a different way, if you can get people to use common words for them and common framing for severity or criticality, you're, you're off to the races, right? That, and a lot of times that's, that level of common visibility and and sort of the common uh, language about risk is something that can drive a lot of you know successful management of risk in organization because this is one of those things that CISO can't do on their own. Um, so I'm I'm a big fan of using frameworks to help um, even when they're problematic. Like uh, you know I I think CVSS as an example is something that people constantly like to sort of argue about and discuss the utility of. I'm a big fan of just CVSS in the sense of like great I have a numerical, uh, you know, sort of, well, I was gonna say a numerical number. I have a real number that I can assign uh, to to a problem. And then I can shift the discussion about the problem, not to how did we get to that number, but to like, do you agree? Like, have we mitigated this? Like, let's let's ignore the number, right? That's just a placeholder for severity. And uh, and let's talk about like what we need to do about this and and what we need to do about classes of problems like this. So uh, big fan, I think any way that we can talk about things with a common language helps sort of build a common success. 
Yeah. I'll, so, you know, to kind of go at CVSS scores, I, I find those, <laughs> I do, I do a practitioner brief every morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. So you're, you know I, know, I know you're on the West coast, so that's might be a little early for you. That's dog walking time. Th- that is, um, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, it is dog walking time. Um, for the most part, although I'm like, you know, former military. So for me, like zero, 500 hours is typically when I'm up and at it. And you know, it's, it's like that all the time, but with CVSS scores, I find those to be very, very interesting. Um, because I think that a CVSS score only apply the severity of it only applies to how you implement or use something specifically within your org. And so what could be, uh, a 4.7, on a CVSS score, not very important, but the way you use that tool, that product, that solution, that software could be a 9.9 for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think for me, I think that's a hundred percent in sync on that. I think for me, the, the thing I like about stuff like CVSS, even though like we can, we can debate and I constantly do with my teams about it being problematic and a little bit subjective. For me, it's more relatable and and comprehensible when you're talking to other engineers other than you know if you just have high medium and low or like critical moderate and and low or something like that then you're getting into you're opening the door for a discussion with other engineering teams or other business leaders about like well is it really severe or is it high is it like moderately high is the criticality like you're having these philosophical you know sort of stylistic uh, discussions about the connotations of those words. When you have something like CVSS and you go like, yeah, each of the component parts of CVSS can be subjective, but you can literally just go through the tick list. Uh, like, okay, you disagree, it's not a 9.9. Well, let's just go through. Okay, it, it had remote access. You could you could execute code on auth. Like, do you, like, where would you set this number? Like, cool. Now we're just talking about the individual components of it. And then maybe it turns out like, oh, you rated it differently. You rated it a 9.2 instead of a 9.7. Well, great. It's still way too high for our environment. Right. Let's go fix it. But I think it's just, it invites that, uh, that level of discussion of like, we're not going to debate whether it's high, medium, or low. We can, might be able to debate the nuance of something, but it's not going to shift the score like two standard deviations away from wherever it, wherever it lands. That's a healthier discussion. That's an easier discussion for people to understand where you're coming from. And that level of transparency, even, even though it's subjective, but just bringing that level of like rational transparency to the discussion can take you a long way. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that transparency piece, because I feel like that transparency piece is something that's very challenging in cybersecurity today for a lot of, I think, for a lot of people, which is, um, how do we create more transparency? How do we drive transparency through a supply chain? How do we drive transparency with our vendors and partners to where we understand that it's a joint effort for security? which might be different from other business aspects. Yeah, it's it's certainly one of the hardest problems we face, right? Um, I think one of the things I've, uh, I've joked, but also very seriously suggested uh, in different venues is it would be great if we could have something um, that was digestible uh, or easily digestible by mere mortals, similar to like nutrition facts. Right. Um, and I think, you know, if, if there were, if we could come up with a common set of nutrition facts for a product or a service that sort of gave you, you know, great, this is, you know, here's a couple of uh, key ingredients and how we lean on privacy. Here's how we lean on security. Here's how we lean on safety. Um, then we'd be able to make much better decisions. But I think 
what we've failed to do as an industry is really come to any kind of consensus about what are the, you know, so what are the facets and vectors of something that really we can all agree on tell us about risk? And instead we've landed on this insane patchwork of, great, I'm gonna onboard you as a vendor, please fill out this 300 column spreadsheet with 16 tabs. And, you know, that will, we will then uh, consult the, you know, consult the Oracle and decide whether you're a high or medium risk for our environment. And frankly, like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bag on that. My my team does that, and it and it works. But that's an incredible amount of wasted effort um, in so many ways, right? E you know, even my organization, we fill out uh, all those spreadsheets because we think it's valuable for our customers to understand the risk that uh, that we might be introducing into their environment. Obviously, I'm biased. I don't think it's a high risk by any means, but we feel like it's really important for us to be transparent with our customers. At the same time. Boy, I'd love to see something that was uh, that was much more standardized that we could, um, you know, that we could communicate. That, and not that I'm a big fan of credit risk scores, but something as easy to understand as like a composite risk score that we all that we people in the industry all agreed on. I think that would go a long way. In the meantime, I think what's really important is if you're a startup or if you're an established enterprise business making billions of dollars. You just have to be committed to to having those discussions and answering those questions transparently until we have a better solution to that. Um, and I think that means if you're a small or medium-sized growing business, you have to be committed to hiring people that know how to answer those questions. We, we have to stop sort of relying on saying like, well, Azure has a SOC 2 and an ISO cert, so I use Azure, so that means I'm secure. Yes, using a cloud provider is going to make your business, can make your business, which I shouldn't say is, can make your business much more secure by default. All the ingredients are there. You just have to use them. It's going to help your business rather than you doing it yourself. That being said, security isn't something you get for free uh, completely in your business. You get some fundamental building blocks, but you have to do a lot of that yourself. <clears throat> and you have to be willing to communicate that to me as a customer. Yeah, um, I'm sure your team, um, like my team ends up doing a lot of mentoring with startups when it comes to those security questionnaires. One thing we kind of developed a culture of was as cybersecurity in our business, we want to be business enablers. We don't want to be the team of no, no doesn't exist in our lexicon. It exists. Yes. But every question you get is a yes, but don't say no. Don't ever tell anyone. No say yes, we can do it. But, and let's focus on what that but is so that we can get it done. And one of the things we developed very quickly that we had to adapt to was the idea of mentoring these young companies that add value to our business, but don't quite have the maturity to address security in a comprehensive manner. So they pose a little bit of a risk to the company. But we look at that as an opportunity for us to really mentor and build transparency and um, and work with these you know up and coming startups on how do you really go back and and maybe fix some of your security outstanding security issues and how does that you know kind of go into the larger scale of your company and that's been something that we've kind of adapted and has been very effective. And I think it's a way to give back, um, you know, because one of the big things is when we're in big organizations, we have the luxury. I was um, I, I did a podcast last year at RSA with uh, Michael Marksman, the CISO over for the CISO for the yeah, yeah. In sure. County, San Francisco. And 
one of the things Mike and I talked about at the time was how do we take the big companies that are within Silicon Valley and create kind of a cybersecurity mastermind for a lot of these companies that are coming up that don't have the capability or access to security because the tools and the knowledge base all exist. So how do we do that similarly here in Atlanta, where we have a very similar ecosystem to the one that exists in um, in, in Silicon Valley? We've got Mercedes-Benz, UPS, Home Depot, Chick-fil-A. Um, we've, you know, Porsche. Um, a lot of really cool companies are based right here in Atlanta. So how do we take these companies, um, Delta Airlines? I can keep going. The list goes on. But um, how do we get these companies who have, you know, the the security chops and know-how and the resources to kind of go to these younger companies that are springing up through our ecosystem and really help them do security in a way where as, you know, we support our local ecosystem, that we can really encourage them to address it a little differently as, you know, they start to build revenue and start to address security from that perspective. Yeah, and it, yeah. it's, it's a very fun conversation to have. Yeah, I think I'm I'm very fortunate <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm very fortunate being in Silicon Valley where I I get to talk to a lot of investors and board members and people starting companies. <clears throat> um, and I think, you know, there's a there's a really cool website that I point people to uh, all the time called enterpriseready.io. And I I think that gives you a really good sense of like, here's some basic security controls that most enterprise companies are gonna want or gonna ask about. As you do, the earlier you start providing logs and SSO and multi-factor authentication and like role-based access controls, the earlier you start, the more serious enterprise customers can take you. And the earlier they can take you serious, the more like you can grow the business quicker, you have access to, to a broader total addressable market earlier on, like that is all really good for you. And the net effect is that security makes you more competitive. If you're an established company, I think... I'm a big fan of investing in your uh, in your vendors that are partnering with you, that are solving real problems with you. And I think it's great. I think more more people should spend more time with those companies. But I think, you know, it's like anything else, like this discussion about shifting left and security. I want to be involved as early as possible. I want to be convincing, uh, and, I, and I feel like I have to some extent, but I want to be convincing people that are, you know, investors and board members in those companies that they should be asking CEOs and founders, like, what's your security strategy? What's your privacy strategy? What's your, if it's consumer product, like what's your safety strategy? How are you planning to address that? And like, it's okay to have a strategy that doesn't start from day one, but if you're not thinking about it from day one, it's it's gonna be a struggle. The further along you get backporting that or regressing that stuff into things that already exist is gonna be really challenging because you're making money, You've, you're driving growth. Like you don't wanna be thinking about re-architecting everything. But I think partners, like vendors that are willing to partner with you and really think about that and really take your feedback and and uh, and execute on it where you can see the change in the product, like those are people, those are people, and it's usually people, it's not companies, it's always people at the company. Those are people worth investing in. Those are people worth your time. And I think, you know, <clears throat> certainly I don't have a ton of vendor relationships. I try to I sort of focus on what my team can do first and then seek out vendors to fill in the gaps. But I think those relationships are worth investing in, and most CISOs should invest in those relationships. So let me ask you this question. What are some of the security um, challenges you see us really starting to overcome where they've kind of become baseline? I don't want to say mundane, but but fairly, I don't want to say fairly easy, but we've got enough solutions to deal with these specific cybersecurity challenges at this point. 
Um, I, I mean, I feel like there's enough antivirus in the market at this point. Um, I feel like there's, I, it's so hard to answer this question. I, I mean, I, I will answer it. I'll say, I think endpoint telemetry feels like there's plenty of solutions at this point. We, we probably don't need any more. But the reality is, um, and, and I'll uh, I'll give a shout out to Melody Hildebrandt, uh, who uh, who's, uh, who works at Fox, um, was was bringing this up in a conversation. We have you know there's a uh, a couple of CISO slacks that I'm a member of. Brought this up of like you know what do you think about things like and I forget the vendor. Um, uh, it might have been like email security, and I said you know it feels like this is a really solved space, and. Uh, and the discussion really grew uh, between her and I and some others around the fact that, like, sure, like there's lots of commodity solutions out there for email security, uh, and a lot of them, a lot of really good ones, have been baked into things like Microsoft 365 and and Gmail and other things like it. But like, we always need to get better. Like, we need to stay ahead of the threat. So really, what we're saying is like, you need like you need a email security solution uh, to help you sort of defend against things. But depending on your risk factors for your organization, you might want to be leaning forward with with some email solution, uh, email security solution, that is really uh, you know cutting edge in some in some way, shape, or form that really is important to you and your business. Obviously, no one's going to operate without some kind of like email file and link scanning thing today. But probably most people aren't sitting there thinking like, oh my god, what's the what's the most cutting edge I can get in that space? Because that's good enough. But but like let's say you're uh, I don't know a tax return company and you've got people emailing you or if you're you've got people emailing you files all day or if you're a recruiting firm and people are just emailing you PDFs all day you probably want to stay ahead like email email security is going to be a significant vector for you um, so I think the reality is like great there are email security solutions there are endpoint uh, detection and response solutions there's telemetry solutions all those things exist we probably don't need a thousand more solutions of those but we do need uh, to constantly be growing and and constantly developing and getting ahead in those spaces because none of them are perfect. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, sorry for muting myself there. Apparently, my neighbor's landscapers decided to show up right at this time on a Tuesday. Got to so, get the job done sometime, buddy. You know, I know. I uh, I, I love them, but they're they've been so kind as to turn off their machines for 10 minutes right now. So um, I'm grateful. Um, <laughs> it's good to have good neighbors. Shout right? out to the neighbors landscapers. Thanks for appreciating. Shout out, yeah. Shout out to my neighbor indeed. Um, so we get to my favorite part of the podcast. Mm. Our special insight round. we get to know a little bit more about you. So Jeff, so here we go. Let's get into the CISO uh, insight round. So I'll tell you um, kind of a very, very, uh, very briefly, I have a buzzword graveyard in my backyard. And so mm. if you could put one buzzword in my graveyard, what buzzword would that be? Oh, man. Um, I think I would put, commit a whole class of things. Anything that, uh, any security buzzword that takes a, uh, a, a physical uh, military term and adds cyber to it, right? So uh, you, you mean know, like cyber encryption? Military-grade encryption, cyber munition. Uh, I, I think it's just like there's so few analogies that work between like physical uh, physical warfare and cyber warfare. Uh, in fact, I would take cyber warfare, throw it right in there. Uh, you know, there there's so much garbage out there. Like we can we can do a better job of inventing our own terms for the nuanced and different things that exist in cyber. We don't have to pull from warfare. I'm gonna give you my venting 
I vented on this this morning on the practitioner brief. Let's Can we it. please give APTs one single name and not have every vendor name an APT its own name? I mean, I would go one step further and can and say, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get grief for this, but I'm gonna go ahead and say it. Sorry, comms team. Can we stop having vendors be the main source of comment on news articles? Like, if we're gonna write an article uh, about a serious security incident that happened that we all should know about and learn about, can the can like the three quotes from experts not be vendors all with all some vested interest in selling you something that will solve the problem that they're quoting about? Like. There's a lot of CISOs out there. There's a lot of security practitioners out there that that don't have a vested interest in hyping up or making the thing seem scarier. I think we can do a better job. And I think not to paint all journalists with a with a brush, like there's a lot of great journalists out there that don't do that. But boy, I, as a CISO, I spend an inordinate amount of time um, giving a different perspective to board members or customers because some article has come out and someone has hyped it to no end uh, that happens to be an investor or uh, you know a marketing person for a, a security company, and it's just you know I get it, I understand that, and and you know by all means I've got a lot of friends working at companies like that. They are experts, but it just doesn't help to exacerbate or be hyperbolic about these things. They're, they're bad enough on their own. So I do the practitioner brief every morning, and as I'm scouring through stories to talk about, I will not feature stories that have vendor comments, or I will stop on the page because I display the actual story on screen. I'll stop where the vendor comments start. Yeah, um, I think I think there's plenty of people at vendors that have great insightful thoughts about that. But, but hey, man, the comments in the way. stories are rarely written by those experts. It's typically the PR person for that vendor or someone in marketing who has a relationship with someone at the publication and they're saying, give me a quote. Here's the question. They t- they write it up. They send it back. And they have someone who's very, very smart write that. And, and unfortunately, I've called some people out who I know. I'm like, dude, what's up with your comment on this article? And they'll go, well, comms did this. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay. So if I could, w- if I could make anything go away, it'd be, it'd be that part of our industry. I love it. Let's talk about... Um, one technology that you think will change the way we do cyber? A technology? Um, Bitcoin, obviously. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we should cut that part out. I'm going to get a lot of tweets about that. Um, I, you know, at this point, I feel like there's a, you know, there's, there's a great source of, uh, of people that are putting a lot of effort into building technologies that are great. Um, I I don't know that the next great thing comes from technology. I think the next great thing just comes from people and bringing more of the right people into security. And what I mean by right people is just like not you know not at ten thousand more people that look like me, but ten thousand more people that don't look like me, that don't think like me, that come from a different background. I think I'm very lucky, and one of the things that makes me great at what I do is I've worked at different companies, I've worked in different jobs, I've worked in different industries, and all of that. I feel very fortunate that that brings me a diversity of perspective to the problems that I face every day. But um, I just, you know, it feels like the next step comes from uh, from just really getting different people involved in the space and and people that come from different walks of life and different career paths, and and really coming down and settling on like what is this space? How do we talk about it? How you know what's the generally accepted principles inside Infosec? Um, 
and I think you know the problem we need to address is really more human than technological. There's certainly a lot of technical problems to solve, but I think you know having great humans doing that work is really the key to it. So you and I share something here, and I don't mean to prolong. This is the last part of the podcast, but I will say that you and I share something where people always say, you know, look at quantum or AI, and and I go, all oh, that's great. I go, but that technology is going to be implemented in tools we already have within our existing environments. So you want people who are going to come in and you want, you know, the technology that's going to change the way we do cyber to me is the diversity of thought and how we solve security problems by the human approach to it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's an aspect to that where when you hire very, very smart people and you sit in a room with a lot of very smart people and you go, this is the problem we have. And here's how we're addressing it today. How could we address it better? And you'll rarely hear anyone say, let's go buy something. You'll predominantly hear people say, we could try this or we could, we should do that. And you know what? I know I have a relationship with the DevOps team and I know they're working on something like this. I wonder if we can incorporate something to address this through something they're already doing. And uh, that's been my experience. And I feel like that's, um, that's helped not only, um, I don't want to say save money on budget, but it's helped uh, build a cohesive, approach to security, even beyond the security team, where DevOps now, when we do our security brainstorming sessions, we've got people from DevOps and engineering and marketing and HR that pop in because they love being part of it because they'll throw out an idea and we go, hey, that's really smart. You know what? Why didn't we think about it? And you know why we didn't think about it? Because we're so, we're, we're locked in the security echo chamber. Yeah. And we're all reading from the same sources. We're all looking at the same things. And we're rarely th- stopping for a moment and saying, hang on, open the door of the cloud, you know, of the cigar smoke in this room that we're all sitting in and trying to solve a problem. And let's bring in a bunch of fresh faces and people who may have a different outlook. And, you know, th- that does it absolutely. So last book you read. Uh, la- oh, yeah. Uh, last book I read. Uh, I haven't been, I've got, I got to admit, uh, since the pandemic, I think I've probably been more Netflix than books, but I think the great game of business was probably the last book I read, uh, which, which was a, which was a page turner, but not necessarily for the reason everybody would think. Um, it was, it was a great book and I think it was assigned, I think I've reread it twice now, but it was assigned through, you know, some senior leadership group I was a part of at the last company. Um, but I've, I've, I've encouraged a bunch of other folks that work for me that are upcoming leaders to, to read. And I encourage all of you to read a book like that because it makes it easy for you to understand, you know, how this all works. How do you read a, uh, a balance sheet? How do you read a profit and loss statement? Like, how do you understand intrinsically how a company makes or loses money? Because, or, and especially so how do you understand what the drivers are for the growth, gross profit and, and for the success of the business, the more you understand that even as somebody who's in security, and even if you're an entry-level practitioner in security, the more balanced your approach to these security problems uh, become, because you realize like, oh, we probably can't spend $100 million on, you know, on solving this one nuanced problem in InfoSec, because uh, that's, you know, that's not realistic for the business. But you can start to think about, okay, if I know the drivers for profit and loss for the business, if I know the drivers for growth for the business, I I can understand better which risk problems to prioritize and which things to invest in more heavily and where we should where we should muster our resources. It, you know, 
doing security is not unlike uh, you know an RPG or a video game in some way. Like you've got a limited set of resources, you've you've got to apply those uh, in an uncooperative game against an adversary that you don't know where they're coming against. And if you want to understand how best to leverage those resources, you need to understand your business and or your organization and how they operate and, and what's a win for them. So I think business books like that are, are really useful context. So the next question should be easy then. The last movie you saw. Oh, yeah, that's that's easy. I watched uh, The Coldest Game uh, on Netflix. Check it out. Uh, it was a great Bill Pullman movie, but it talks about uh, the uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis from the perspective of... Uh, of some other folks. I think it's certainly dramatized, but uh, it's a good Cold War thriller. Uh, I, I like that. That's uh, I've actually seen it. It's pretty good. Good uh, stuff. Yeah, it is good stuff. Um, watch Operation Finale. Oh, I'll check that out. All right. That's a, that's a, it's a, it's the story of how uh, the Israelis caught Eichmann in Argentina. Mm-hmm. See, I love these ones that are sort of like, uh, that are thriller intrigue, but uh, have some historical basis. Yeah, it's, a, the best. it's very cool. I've, I've been on a World War II kick since uh, the COVID started, since COVID kicked in, and, and kind of we've been home a lot on Netflix. So I've seen, um, I think, over like 20 some odd documentaries and shows around World War II and uh, bringing Nazi criminals to, to uh, justice in the years past. I am definitely turning into that old white guy that all he talks about is World War II or the Cold War or something like that. And this latest documentary or or by a bibliographical book uh, that I wrote or or read rather. Uh, so I'm doing my job to turn into my father. Yeah, I think we all do that. I think that's just men as we age, we start to look more and more at history and like kind of legacy starts to become a thing for us. Right. So what's the legacy of that generation? And then what's the legacy we're leaving our next generation? I find myself being in cybersecurity. And because we're kind of, I don't want to say trailblazers, maybe I'm complimenting myself our, ourselves a little bit, but because we're uh, really defining the role, we're in the era where, as you said early on, the role of security and the role of a CISO hasn't been defined quite yet. So we're kind of all doing our part to define this role somehow, some way. And so that's part of what we do. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a documentary guy to begin with. So I like to read autobiographies, historical accounts. Um, I rarely watch actual entertainment. Rarely. I'm more into, into that because I feel like that really. You should give it a try sometime. It might be a good balance. So when I do watch entertainment stuff, um, I can't watch war movies, especially stuff from the, my, like time in the military. So anything about Iraq or Afghanistan, I watch and I go, Oh, come on up. Oh, all right. I can't, my wife hates watching that stuff with me. Cause she goes, I can't do this. And I go, well, I can't watch this. This is like, this would never happen in real life. And so it is what it is. What's your favorite music? Uh, my favorite music. I have a pretty eclectic taste, but I'm a big fan of blues, R and B and hip hop. Um, but, uh, I think there's little music I don't like. I love it. Jeff, thank you for coming on the show today. Um, Thanks for having me, Jay. It's been a blast having you on. Thank you so much. And people can definitely con- connect with the CISO of LinkedIn on LinkedIn, folks. You know, that's that's where he hangs out um, predominantly. That's, that's where you'll find me. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for everyone for watching this week's CISO Talk. We'll be back with a lot more next week. Until then, thank you for watching. Thank you for staying tuned. Make sure to comment, subscribe and follow us on your favorite social media platforms, including LinkedIn. Until then, this is James Azar signing off. Jeff, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, everybody.
Cheers. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. And get all the latest information at cyberhubpodcast.com. Thank <laughs> you.